in psychedelic therapy, it's absolutely undeniable that there is a lot of love in the room. And that I think is because you are in a very different role to a, a kind of standard therapist in that if somebody is going through a reliving of, of horrific childhood trauma experiences, which sometimes happens, and they're there for many hours and they're sobbing, then you may well have your arm around that person when they're in that position. If Because if somebody is in that very vulnerable position of going back to, and it's not like in a therapy session where you talk about what happened, you're actually reliving it and you're back to feeling like a five-year-old child and you're shaking with tears and you're floods of tears for sometimes hours. As the guide in the session, it would be very difficult to sit back and not provide a hand to hold or an arm around the shoulder. So there is that touch uh, happens, which is something that requires a lot of training and consent around exactly what kind of touch is appropriate, what kind of touch would never be appropriate. But it's obviously normally in, in standard therapy, you don't hug your patients. There's a lot of hugging in psychedelic therapy as well. At the end of a session, there will often be a hug. Even the next day, there might be. So there is there's more of a sense of two human beings, three human beings, if there's two guides. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Thanks very much for joining us today, Ros. Ros Watts is a clinical psychologist whose work as the clinical lead for Imperial College London's psilocybin trial has made her one of the most prominent voices in the field of psychedelics. And you've been named as one of the 50 most influential people in psychedelics, as well as being in the top 16 women shaping up the field. And listeners, you might recognise her from the Michael Pollan series on Netflix, How to Change Your Mind. Thanks very much for giving us your time today. Ros, really great to have the chance to speak with you. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, Ros, very nice to meet you. Thank you very much for coming along. I love that introduction and I'm wondering what it must be like to be one of the 50 most influential people in psychedelics, all kinds of ideas. So how did you get so interested in psilocybin? Is that how you mm. pronounce it? In America, they say psilocybin. In the UK, they say psilocybin. But I tend to say psilocybin. But yeah, so it's it was an interesting journey and very unexpected. And I certainly never, ever imagined when I was doing my clinical psychology training that I would ever be in any list to do with anything to do with psychedelics and so I worked in the NHS in a community mental health team as far away from the psychedelic research world as you can really get and I really loved it but I was also like many people working in the NHS very quite tired working very hard and feeling frustrated at the length of the waiting list and the lack of provision of effective treatments as well and enough care for people there are lots of people that aren't accessing good mental health care and then I went on maternity leave and it was on my maternity leave that my very good dear friend from childhood told me that she was going to do an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru which I'd never heard of but is a psychedelic brew it has a very similar effect to psilocybin and she went because she had quite bad depression and she wanted to see if it could help her and I was quite suspicious but when I saw her come back from Peru, I realized that she'd had a really profound change and she just seemed very much back to the person I'd known growing up. And that kind of heavy overcoat of depression just seemed to have been lifted off her. When my maternity leave finished, instead of going back to the NHS, I went to Imperial to be part of their psilocybin for depression trials. And yeah, just had a total career change and jumped in the deep end of psychedelics. So that all sounds, I was going to say serendipitous, but actually, of course, you had thought about it quite a, a lot by the time you applied for the job at you know, Imperial. Anyway, hallucinogenics can be quite divisive. It's a rather a contentious area. Why do you think that is? I think they're divisive for good reason, and I'm actually quite glad they are. When I first started in that job at Imperial, uh, for the first few years, I was... Along, thinking along the lines of 
psychedelics, hallucinogenics are wonderful. They're amazing. Why is there all this stigma against them? Oh, it's because in the 60s they were made illegal for slightly spurious reasons. And I was very much a kind of very strong advocate in feeling like it's an absolute travesty that they're illegal. And I have to say that in my years of working within psychedelics, I've t- I have a, a much more nuanced position now, which is that over the, the last eight years of working with psychedelics, I have heard so many stories and seen so many people have incredible transformational experiences. And I have also seen a lot of people that are using psychedelics unsafely that have had lots of very challenging experiences that have not been helpful. So I think it makes a lot of sense that they're divisive because many people will know someone that had a terrible experience with psychedelics and maybe still hasn't recovered. And so their doubt and uncertainty is very justified. And I think that we now are in a position where there's a lot of research showing that psychedelics can be very beneficial when used in a very safe container. And I think we now have to find ways of learning more about them, making them accessible in safe ways for the people that might benefit, but also making sure that we're responsible so that harms don't happen on on a large scale, which they could if psychedelics are just not, yeah, if there is not enough care in the way they are provided for people. Thank you. Given all that controversy, do you think that has hampered the progress of research? And do you think Big Pharma has anything to do with this? Hmm, It's a very interesting question. I think, yeah, some people think that psychedelics are a big threat to Big Pharma because if people can have a really profound healing experience from one or two sessions and then perhaps come off the long-term use of medications for mental health difficulties are very lucrative and very widely prescribed. So there is a kind of idea that Big Pharma would be against psychedelics. And certainly we haven't seen Big Pharma be particularly interested in getting behind them, which I think is probably not a bad thing. But yeah, I think ultimately there's all sorts of kind of conspiracy theories around psychedelics and psychedelics certainly have a very kind of checkered history. They've been used in all sorts of very unsavory settings like by the CIA and they can be used for all sorts of purposes so psychedelics aren't inherently benign they are amplifiers and they can be used to make people more suggestible as well they can make people very vulnerable so yeah they are there's a lot of different kind of takes on it but ultimately I think that I'm not so swayed by any of those particular stories and I think now we're in a position where I think we will start to see big pharma get interested and that actually them getting behind it if it can be done the right way doesn't have to be bad I think we have to all come together now and make as many mental health treatments available as possible because we just are in such a the gravity of the times that we're in mean that we have to all just come together and there has been as, as long as psychedelics have been in use, there's been a lot of division within the field. There's often kind of polarity between, for example, the underground use, so people that are using psychedelics illegally, and the overground, so clinical trials. Those two communities have often been uh, at odds. And also there has been a, a very long history of terrible injustice, actually, from indigenous populations that have plant medicines within their culture and lineage and then companies that have come in and appropriated those medicines and taken them and without giving proper reparations to those communities or supporting those communities properly the psychedelics field is fraught with politics and divisions and still now there is a lot of yeah suspicion from one side to the other side but I think that sometimes when I think about the the forecast for climate change and for huge problems within our global population in the next decades that actually we need anything that we can find that might help us heal and help us feel more connected to each other and more connected to the world around us. I think we're in a time when I'm hoping those divisions will start to heal and we'll all work together to make sure that psychedelic therapy is really truly accessible to people that would need it wherever they are in the world and whatever their financial situation Thank you. It's a question really of building up reputation and I suppose 
respectability again. I was, I'm recalling that there was a notorious case at Oak Ridge in Saskatchewan in Canada back in the 60s where LSD was used a lot. It was misused apparently according to the various court uh, rulings mm. afterwards. And, and I think, I suppose one of the things that we're much clearer about now is having proper protocols and ensuring that consent is sought and, and given. Yes. yes. Mm. Absolutely, yes. It's It makes me shudder to think of people that have been in the past kind of dosed against their will with psychedelics because anybody listening that's had a psychedelic experience will know how utterly terrifying they can be and how if you didn't know that's what had happened, you would think that you were going mad or dying. And even when people know that they've given their consent to have a psychedelic experience, and even when they have a therapist holding their hand, they still often often feel that they're dying or that they're losing their mind. And at least when they have somebody holding their hand and support, then they can work through that. But if that was sprung upon somebody, then it's one of the most terrifying things I can imagine. And that's why we need to be so careful around who has yeah who has access to these tools mm, thank you can you tell us a bit uh, about the research you've been doing at imperial college yeah sure so when i started there i was working in the it was in the neuroscience department and it was actually a brain imaging study so everybody had a scan brain scans and it was very much a kind of very carefully controlled study. It was had funding from the, I can't remember what the council is called now, but like one of the kind of governmental medical research councils, it was all very above board and careful. And we had to have a license from the home office to use psilocybin because it's a controlled substance. So it, there was two studies that I worked on. The first was a small study. The second was much bigger. And people with depression came in. And they were seen in a treatment room with a psychiatrist and a psychologist guiding them through the session. And they would have capsules of psilocybin and they would have therapy sessions beforehand and therapy sessions afterwards. But the actual psychedelic session would be a six hour session where they would lie in the room, listening to a playlist of special music that was made, created for the experience, having the headphones on. And they would have a whole day of experiencing themselves in this very different way this very deep journey into often into the layers of their pain and trauma but often coming out of the experience feeling a real deep sense of connectedness to themselves and to other people and to the world around them as well it was very beautiful to witness thank you that sounds uh, uh, an amazing experience actually so what mm. kind of results have you been seeing so the results of the first trial were unbelievably extraordinary and the effect sizes were so great that we it was difficult to contain our enthusiasm. So that was an open-label study. Everybody knew that they were having psilocybin and they described absolutely enormous benefits. And they, they filled in the Hamilton depression rating scale and also the quids, which is the quick inventory of depression symptoms, which was a self-rated thing. And on that outcome measure, they rated themselves as being, I think it was only 20 people, but most of them went into remission and seemed to stay in remission for a couple of months afterwards. And then for most of them, by the time six months was up, they were starting to go back to being depressed again. A couple of people stayed in remission long term. But for most people, it was a kind of three month window of feeling not depressed, which was extraordinary because these were people that had been depressed for many decades and nothing had really helped. And then suddenly they had two or three months of saying, I'm not depressed. It was just extraordinary. But then in the second trial, which was a randomized control trial, we allocated participants to two groups one of them was a group that was going to have the psilocybin and the other group had antidepressants so escitalopram antidepressants and we actually found in that study that the two groups performed quite similarly but the interesting thing was that both groups did very well so the people in the antidepressant group did much better than normal experiences of antidepressants that we hear and the participants themselves had tried antidepressants many times and they hadn't really worked so what I think was happening was that 
we give the psychedelic therapy in a container of lots of therapy, lots of connection with the guys, lots of care and attention. And so I think that the people in the escitalopram, the antidepressant group, they had a placebo psilocybin session where they sat with the guides and they had the music all day so that they didn't know which group they were in. And I think that having been a guide in those sessions myself, people had really powerful experiences on a placebo dose, which was essentially a microdose. It was a one milligram dose. And people still had very profound experiences, which left me to think that maybe a lot of what is active in psychedelic therapy is having two therapists sitting with you and the music and the care. And that, of course, we're not able to provide that for people in standard mental health services, but that actually it was that plus the expectations because they were they didn't know what their dose was. And often, even on a microdose, they felt a bit different. So they felt that they were having a psychedelic experience. And in a way they were, but it was just a kind of endogenously produced psychedelic experience that they were just feeling very moved by the music and moved by having two people there either side of them for the whole day. My conclusion of the results afterwards was that therapy um, is very effective, but that actually antidepressants could also be much more effective if they were given in a container of kind of music therapy and support and care and having some kind of hope as well. But doesn't it suggest that the effective con- component was the care and concern yes. that, that, that yes. received? I think so. I think that's absolutely the case. And I think when people have care and concern without a psychedelic, it, it's not quite the same because there isn't the expectation. It's, oh, this mm. is just somebody sitting with me and being nice to me. But when there's that sense of wonder of, wow, I'm in this experience where I might be having a psychedelic experience, it opened up some sense of wonder and possibility and hope too. There's a lot of avenues that takes me down in terms of how we can design interventions for people that aren't just about psychedelics or that could be about very low dose psychedelics, but where really utilizing the power of kind of connection and hope and awe rather than just the drug itself. It's really interesting to hear you talk about those kind of qualities, I think, because as you watch the, certainly in terms of what's been available to see online or in TV programmes, I suppose the work looks like there's a lot of love poured into the, for want of a better word, perhaps into the individual and their treatment. And you're referring to awe, for instance, and care, which kind of like speaks of those qualities. But I wondered, does this kind of therapy demand something different from therapists than other models might always mm. always live up to? Six hours of support is a lot. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you used the word love because sometimes it's hard as a therapist or a psychologist to talk about love. But I think we all sometimes probably feel it for clients and patients that we're working with when we work with them for a long time, especially. And you see those moments of vulnerability and you feel something that is deep care that can really sometimes it really does feel like love but I suppose because of boundary violations in the past and because of people coming in with trauma where those boundaries have been violated we're very careful about how we refer to those kind of feelings of tenderness for our clients but in psychedelic therapy it's absolutely undeniable that there is a lot of love in the room and that I think is because you are in a very different role to a a kind of standard therapist in that If somebody is going through a reliving of of horrific childhood trauma experiences, which sometimes happens, and they're there for many hours and they're sobbing, then you may well have your arm around that person when they're in that position. Because if somebody is in that very vulnerable position of going back to, and it's not like in a therapy session where you talk about what happened, you're actually reliving it and you're back to feeling like a five-year-old child and you're shaking with tears and you're floods of tears for sometimes hours, as the guide in the session, it would be very difficult to sit back and not provide a hand to hold or an arm around the shoulder. So there is that touch uh, happens, which is something that requires a lot of training and consent around exactly what kind of touch is appropriate, what kind of touch would never be appropriate. But it's obviously normally in in standard therapy, you don't hug your patients. There's a lot of hugging in psychedelic therapy as well. At the end of a session, there will often be a hug. Even the next day, there might be. So there is, there's more of a sense of two human beings, three human beings, if there's two guides. It's soul to soul. You're just there as a human being. And 
you're there with them for so many hours and you hear them express things in such a deeply moving and vulnerable way that there is that sense of, of just going much deeper. And actually, there is so much love and care poured into the way the sessions are held because we know in advance that if someone's going to be brave enough and courageous enough to go to some very painful places, that that needs to be met with the kind of, in a way, a bit like reparenting, because so often where people go in these sessions is back to the layers of shame and pain from when we were very little and we didn't get the care we needed from our parents. So we never want to re-traumatize people or replicate those wounds. So having it's lovely having two therapists there. We often try to have a man and a woman and we tried to be in a way be there as the kind of reparative experience of two people that were there absolutely all day with nothing to do apart from be there for you. And I think that's hugely healing. And for any of us, regardless of the psychedelic or not, the idea of having a male and a female therapist who are there a hundred percent for you all day would be quite healing for most of us without any psychedelics involved. You touch on some really deep issues and just thinking about how much of what people, what brings people to therapy is that sense of not being enough, not being good enough. There's a whole therapeutic model being developed by Marissa Peer around that very underlying belief, hasn't there? And touching on these kind of like deep issues, like certainly I know in the prison system when I worked there, we used to talk about agape, the Greek concept of loving compassion, because that felt a safer way to talk about love. And interestingly, often the prisoners would talk about feeling loved and cared for, and the prisoners were more capable of understanding that was a non-sexualized, non-romanticized sense of that need to feel loved and appreciated by somebody who cared about you genuinely, but also the idea of touch and some models like sensory motor psychotherapy do incorporate touch within them and how, again, like you say, how healing a reparative touch can be. But I suppose speaks to the need for really good supervision that is in which supervisees are and supervisors are incredibly honest about their own experiences in order to be protective of the therapist and the client in that process. Mm, such a good point I think certainly in the first kind of the since kind of 2005 there's been this kind of psychedelic renaissance this new wave of research happening and there's definitely been a sense of because psychedelics were so stigmatized in the 60s and 70s and then became illegal I think when they've come back in there's been this sense of over idealizing them over hyping them and also perhaps not as much honesty about when things go wrong as there as we need because it oh no we can't have them go illegal again we've got to pretend everything's perfect so there's this swing from stigmatizing and scapegoating to over idealizing and sugarcoating and polishing so I think it's right that a, a new level of real honesty from people needs to come in that sense of an amnesty of this is not in our culture. As psychologists or therapists, we haven't learned how to use these approaches. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to feel a bit lost with them because they're very different to the things we've used before. But just as long as we're really honest about those times where we get pulled away from what we meant to do. And I think it happens a lot because one of the things I've really noticed and one of the things I struggled with was there's an awful lot of projection onto the therapists or the guides as these kind of angelic healers. And it's quite hard. I certainly found from years in the NHS of kind of you're in the trenches, there's it's tough work and it's long work and there's, it's not very glamorous and you often don't get thanks because often people aren't receiving the care they need. And at the end of my time in the NHS, I felt like I wasn't a particularly great therapist and that people were having good experiences, but I'm not sure if anybody's like long-term depression had really shifted even after some sessions with me and then going into the psychedelic sessions where I didn't need to do anything but sit there like press play on the playlist and sometimes hold their hand and really not do very much more apart from being a caring presence but it was in a way much easier than delivering talking therapy and yet people afterwards sending these emails saying you've completely changed my life there's all this huge gratitude and when you're at the receiving end of all that projection, it's quite easy to get. I think I got a bit ungrounded with it in the sense that there's a lot of spirituality that goes with psychedelics as well. And certainly I know from my own psychedelic experiences, 
as someone that was previously an atheist, the psychedelic experiences I had made me go, oh, okay, there's something bigger out there. Mm, interesting. Now I understand what sacred means. Now I feeling like I'm connected to something that is about much more than the kind of scientific material world. And so I think the new therapist coming in with that very materialist scientific training and then suddenly having this other world opened up from your own psychedelic experiences, which when people are training, you encourage to do so that you can understand what psychedelic therapy is, obviously in a legal setting, but also you're working with all these people having these mystical, often mystical experiences. And so a combination of the projection where you think, oh, I'm doing rather well now, everyone's saying I'm changing their lives and also the spiritual aspect you can just see how people like become the kind of guru complex or you can see how in spiritual communities often the people that are in leadership positions go far off the rails and start becoming way too inflated and abusing their power so it's I saw just a tiny bit of my of that in myself enough to make me realize that oh we're gonna need so much supervision and we're going to need so much extra layer of training and peer supervision and accountability so that we can like when we get a bit inflated we can prick a hole in the balloon and come back down to ground that's really refreshingly honest Rose, but also i think really fascinating when you look at the history of people who've led movements which seem to have had quite a start in something that felt quite wholesome and good and healthy and healing and then somehow get warped and distorted and then next thing you know they're sleeping with all of the people who have joined their communities and and so on so I think that's really fascinating to hear that insight but I was also curious about you were a little bit dismissive of the role in the sense of just being there in a room holding someone's hand but we all know from various other treat kind of treatments we might have had, you can tell whether somebody's holding your hand in a disinterested, also look checking my nails stance, or yeah. whether they're present with you holding your hand and are really present. And I suppose I wondered how much work that took to be able to do that. And also what happens if you're having a bad day because something's happened at home, your child's sick or you've had an argument with your partner. How do you manage to hold it together for six hours or doesn't it matter? Lovely question. And yes, no, it's a very good point that there is a real difference. And in a way, when we were, yeah, thinking about what it takes to be a guide, it was very much like you're not doing much, but you are you're having to be quite a lot. It's actually, if anybody watches you, you're just sitting there, but you are having to keep your attention focused on the person. And like you say, bring your presence and really just sometimes things can happen where they do need you to be fully present and actually to kick into a different gear because all sorts of things can happen in the session. So your attention does need to, in a way, really not waver because if you go off into another, if you go off into a kind of reverie about something else and you weren't really present I think they can feel it I do, like you say I think people can feel the quality of your presence and when people are on a psychedelic they're so much more sensitive it's incredible the sensitivity they have and they can feel it and they would also sometimes open their eyes and look at you and ask you a question or want to engage and one of the things I really found was that my nervous system had to be really regulated because for them, it was often an incredibly intense day, one of the most intense experiences they'd ever had. And, and so even though you're just sitting there, you need to be really emotionally regulated and grounded so that if they do become extremely paranoid suddenly or go into something from their past where they're screaming and shouting, potentially wanting to escape the room or knock things over or think that you're out to get them and want to yeah it's all sorts of different things can happen you do need to be in a very calm state so that you can meet their panic with gentle non-fluffed your feathers don't get fluffed kind of thing I guess it's the attitude of psychedelic therapy is really that wherever they go is where they need to go and that you're just going to allow them to experience what they're experiencing and that they just say yes to whatever comes up and that if they have a, a strong emotion, 
that they, they should be allowed to make that bigger, really express it, allow it to culminate and, and be worked through rather than repressing it or shutting it down. So it really does mean holding space for some intense things and not panicking yourself. Because if you panic, then it's much worse for them. If they're panicking and they look over at their guide and they're like, is this normal? I'm dying. And you're like, yeah, it's you die. You let yourself die. I'm here. You're going to be fine. If you're feeling like you're dying, allow that to completely happen. Just let it, let it happen is really the mantra. Just whatever's happening, let it happen. But if they think they're dying and sometimes they know that psychedelics can make you feel that you're dying, but when it happens, they think that they're actually dying and they're like, no, I need an ambulance now. You have to know that if you started panicking, going, oh God, maybe they do, then that would be really awful for them. If they say, I'm losing my mind and I need to be admitted to the psych ward, which sometimes people have said, take me to the secure unit because I've become psychotic. And in that situation, you have to be regulated and calm enough to say, great, you've become psychotic, you're doing brilliantly, keep being psychotic, let yourself be as psychotic as you possibly can, go for it, I'm here with you, you're safe, you are going to come back from wherever you go, let yourself go to the depths of whatever it is that is, is coming up, take yourself as far as you can. And so I think to be able to say that kind of thing, which obviously sounds shocking and counterintuitive and almost risky, but it's actually far less risky than saying the opposite, which is, oh dear, you're psychotic. Oh no, what are we going to do? Yeah, it's That would be more risky. But to be able to say something like that, you have to be so calm yourself. And it's true that there would often be things that would happen where I wasn't feeling that kind of calm on my way to work something had happened, something's preoccupying. But what I found happened was that no matter what was going on in my personal life, there's something, I think it's because you have the music playing in the room. So the music playlist is on and the, the therapist can hear it as well as the participant. They have it on the headphones, but it's playing in the room. And the music is so important. And the music is soothing and grounding and beautiful. And the, the way we set up the room was with loads of really lovely salt lamps glowing, this kind of lovely golden glow, very low lighting. And so and we had like pictures of trees all around the walls. So it felt like you were in a kind of candle lit forest. And so I think no matter what happened in my personal life, when I opened the door and it was that glowing, very special, sacred, soft environment, my body would just go into psychedelic guiding land and somehow I would be able to put aside my concerns for the day and then at the end of the day you'd come out feeling completely exhausted from the session and then all your worries of your own life come back so although I found that during the actual session I was able to put my own issues aside at the end of the trial I felt completely burnt out because all of those days of yeah kind of, I suppose maybe in a way not giving my own emotions space for them to be expressed so that I could hold that kind of calm space. I needed a good year to decompress and bring myself back to life because I was, yeah, I was in total burnout. That's so interesting. Thank you. And I wondered whether your experience led to you having an opinion on how frequently can you do that kind of work as a therapist? It doesn't sound like the sort of thing you should be doing every day. I completely agree. So in the trial, it was sometimes twice a week, but they had their prep and integration sessions on the other days. So it was every day and it was way, way too much. And I think now there is going to be pressure because the amount of people that are going to want these treatments is going to far outweigh the amount of therapists that have been trained. So there, I think there will be this sense of kind of perhaps pressure. And I know in clinical trials, they you know, have limited funding budget so they have to go fast within the time frame they've got but I do think that ideally I think yeah like once every two weeks or something like that I think even once a week when you really give yourself fully to that session and the other thing is I think that when someone's going through something like this being with them on their journey is so important so if you're seeing somebody every week then that means that You've got a new person coming in every week and that's a lot of people to be walking alongside. So I think probably having two per month, I can't imagine being able to be really present for, for many more than that. 
I used to think that it was like you sit with him from the session and then it's like goodbye. But in a way, people want to contact you six months afterwards and a year afterwards. And it's nice to be available for them when they want to contact you. Yeah, I think the magic of this work would really be preserved if the therapists doing it have a lot of space and time around every session and that they're not doing it. Yeah, certainly not every day. Again, you're, I think you're raising another divergence from like mainstream talking therapy there because actually people who've made great progress after therapy often do want to touch base with their previous therapists and let them know how they're doing and some amazing progress that they've made and I think in private practice that can be easy, easier to do sometimes but there isn't that much space for that within NHS work is there or people start getting concerned about boundaries again when actually if you've been working at a very deep level with someone in some ways I think it's quite natural to want to share those moments if someone's mattered to you for that period of time and I think as therapists it's always lovely to hear from people that you've been in ther- had in therapy with you to hear how they're doing and I think it's good to to hear that people are met. you can delight in that in those further progresses yeah. a lot of the things that you're talking about I think would be really challenging to mainstream services and when you were talking about the lovely room with the nice lights and the trees and what have you and the nice music all things that require a lot of thought and consideration I suppose it makes me shudder a bit when I think about how statutory services are not really set up with that level of care and thought sometimes you're seeing people in a a really horrible room full of medical equipment you're just doing therapy wherever you can get a space everything's done to keep the cost as reduced as possible and in a way there's an ideal you're describing a very ideal scenario and I I, I suppose I worry about rollout of these kind of interventions in terms of how much corners would be cut and whether that might then impact on the, the integrity of the intervention absolutely and I think in a way that the kind of the model that I hope will come in is something around local communities providing this a bit by the community for the community in a way like I think our whole systems of care are in flux aren't they really as the NHS becomes funding becomes more and more scarce and I think that just yeah it's not particularly well thought through but when I think about so I live in a village in Somerset when I imagine in our village if we wanted to provide this for our community then I can imagine that our town hall, we could make one of the rooms in there like really beautiful and really nice. And that this is something where I think the people in the village who are have a medical training or a psychology training, offering it for free. I think that there is something that's so rewarding about this work that I would certainly wouldn't be able to do it that often, but I would. it's such a privilege to do it. And in Indigenous communities, the medicine women that used to do this they didn't accept payment usually. It would be that they would just do this for the love, the work. I think we might find that as psychedelics become more researched and as they become legalised in places, the vision I have, my hope is that one day we'll have a kind of mushroom growing garden in local communities and that communities will step up and find ways of making this available. Because I do think that as soon as we try and put it into the conventional healthcare systems corners will be cut and it also it's so at odds with the whole western medical model of, of how healing happens so i do think in a way we're going to see this psychedelics as part of a real paradigm shift there's no clear way at the moment of how that would be but ultimately healing is this kind of healing is something so different to western models of treatment and so i think there will be a very different model that grows up around it and i don't really know what it'll look like it might be so far away from my little village idea but i think it will be i do have faith that that these ways of working will become accessible to people and i have faith that they will be done really beautifully because there's something about the psychedelic experience when you have one that it, it it becomes a real passion for people and a real calling for people and that the idea of doing it badly it doesn't like it's a labor of love it really is a labor of love and 
we will find ways of bringing that to people in in creative ways. Thank you. So it's so interesting hearing your perspective on it as a therapist involved in something like this. But I think we'd be doing you a disservice if we weren't to touch on how instrumental you were in helping the research team think about integration, because I, I understand that's quite a large contribution that you made. And I wondered how you devised a protocol for this. What knowledge did you draw on? Where did you look to to think about what happens? Mm, thank you. It was all from the participants themselves, really. So in the first trial, I did a follow-up research study, qualitative one. So I interviewed all those 20 people in the first trial about their psilocybin experience and how they were doing six months on. And it was so interesting meeting them six months after the trial, but I realized that many of them, their depression had come back. So I realized at that point, okay, when we do the next trial that's going to be bigger, we need to have some support for people when their depression comes back. We can't just say, oh, your brain is going to be reset because that was an analogy that some people use, but that was, I think, quite a naive analogy for us to hold on to. We hoped it might be that way because we were a neuroscience study, but actually, no, it's much more complicated than that. There's no one magic session that's going to reset your brain. Sometimes people do have very profound shifts, but still their integration work is always important, the follow-up work. So I set up an integration group in London that was a kind of community group that anyone using psychedelics could come to in preparation for the next trial so that there would be somewhere for our participants to come. But actually lots of people that came to that integration group were, yeah, they were really describing so many challenges in the phase after psychedelics, things that I hadn't anticipated. So people becoming very sensitive very kind of thin-skinned and quite raw people making some very big impulsive decisions having an experience so we'd have people that had been to ayahuasca retreats and they'd say oh mother ayahuasca told me to quit my job or move to peru and people just listening and doing these really huge things and sometimes it would work out okay but most of the time we have this deep longing inside us and we might feel that a psychedelic experience has given us all the permission to do something drastic, but actually there was often a lot of fallout from that and people really regretted it. We just knew that people need a safe space to come to and they need to meet each other because the trial, it was individual care. So individual treatment, just one person with their guides and psychedelic work needs to be integrated in community. Plant medicines have always been integrated in community for the thousands of years that they've been used because they increase the sense of connectedness to each other. The people in our trials were desperate to meet each other and to connect with each other. I suppose I just listened to what they said and put that together. And then I suppose the other ingredient was realizing that as well as becoming much more connected to other people, often feel connected to nature afterwards. It really surprised me, this finding that people that had never been interested in nature at all said things like, oh, I realized that I used to look at nature like a thing, like a kind of TV or a painting. And it was something that I was vaguely sometimes a bit bothered by, but I'd probably rather go shopping or to the cinema or watch TV. Nature's not my thing. And then suddenly they'd say, oh my goodness, I am nature. Nature is me. They would look at trees in a totally different way. They would go for a walk in the park and be absolutely stunned by the beauty of the natural world. So I put those things together and I developed an integration program, which is essentially all about boosting that connectedness to each other, but also to nature. Yeah, that's what I work on now. I now am much more involved in the integration than the actual psychedelic um, sessions themselves. Thank you very much. And uh, people can find out about your integration model from your website, can't they? Which we'll put links to in, yes. in our show notes. Yeah, Thank you. absolutely. Pleasure. Thank you, Ros. You've given us some beautiful descriptions uh, today, particularly I was thinking of, of the way in which uh, people communicate um, unconsciously, uh, in particular circumstances, and you know, being able to notice that is so important. But I remain a bit puzzled. I'm still not clear about your understanding of the process. What do you think is happening because it, it it doesn't sound as if you're saying that people relive traumatic ex experiences 
but that they have experiences which may include reviewing or reliving traumatic experiences and then somehow the kind of impact of those experiences is, is diminished or made or, or is it the other way around that in some way the capacity of the individual to cope with those memories and feelings is improved or increased interesting interesting framing as well I think most of the time in terms of what I thought seemed to be happening or how people described it was that, especially with depression, but I think with all of us, we're very much in our minds. We are ruminating a lot, thinking, and that by being in our heads so much and thinking, it prevents us from really feeling. And so there's something about, it's almost like the floodgates opening and people just having these very strong emotional experiences. So whatever emotions have been repressed or pushed down, just erupts and it is something around the resilience of being able to sit with them and feel them and the the depth of that and so it's that thing about the Jungian quote of what you resist persists and when people are in their head and but there are these big feelings of shame or pain or grief or anger that have been pushed deep down they're still there just in the basement knocking at the basement door the kind of the monsters in the dungeon kind of thing and then like opening up that trap door and allowing all those big feelings to come out and that somehow by opening that up there is a sense of real yeah openness and relief of actually facing the things that we're normally too scared to face and also as well as I think when you open yourself up to emotion not only do you are you greeted by the shame and the fear and the anger but often the love and the tenderness and the forgiveness that, that kind of come alongside those feelings often. They certainly do in psychedelic experiences. So people would describe a real roller coaster of emotion and they would go from, yeah, like fear to shame to anger to compassion to joy to peace. That would be a kind of, I, I guess, like there's not, no such thing as typical, but that was a kind of journey through the psychedelic roller coaster that might be described by someone. I thought it was a really interesting question, David, and I suppose it made me also think about Gaia theory and that idea that, which you seem to be referencing already, the idea that we are all part of one universe, there's no such thing as I really, it's it's all we or we as uh, Dan Siegel might say, and I guess a lot of the guests that we've had on here have spoken about how psychological issues do keep people locked up inside themselves and quite often therapy is about helping people connect to one another isn't it is by removing the shame giving forgiveness to yourself and all those sorts of things but ultimately I suppose what it's doing is enabling that connection to the universe if at its kind of like most profound level and I guess we don't really think about that in therapy very much we just think about helping individual become more connected to themselves and the community but actually maybe we should be thinking much more about how we connect at a deeper level to the universe and maybe that's where the this really profound experience that people are having from the psychedelics is they're having that and that's why they end up having a sense of spiritual a spiritual journey at the same time yeah beautifully put and I think so I think there is that sense of going from yeah this the separateness of the individual ego mind to that falling away and feeling that connectedness to everything and yeah that's often I think certainly connectedness is is the the thing that people describe most often happening and when it's interconnectedness and realizing that they are connected to this web of life that is everything then yeah it's it's hard to feel lonely again when you're connected to everything thanks very much Roz you've given us a a lovely description earlier as well of how you'd like to see the uh, treatment develop and the idea of having a setting in every village um, is rather wonderful not with this government I suspect but um, (laughs) anyway how do you look after yourself you're doing this challenging work you've done challenging work all your working life and you're in this new field now which obviously has huge emotional rewards which is also quite draining so how do you look after yourself oh a lovely question so trees have been my very good friends and I find trees incredibly grounding and rooting and going to sit in the forest. So near where I live, there's an amazing ancient forest and going to sit there and breathe with the trees. The human in-breath 
is the tree's out breath. The tree's out breath is the human in breath. So sitting with the tree and just breathing is one of my favorite kind of grounding things. But I've got to say beyond that, really, I find that I've always been very lucky to have amazing friends, like a really incredible group of very deeply supportive friends. And a lot of my friends that have come from the psychedelic world, and there is a sense that through going through these kind of deep experiences together and working in this way together with kind of our bonds have definitely deepened and increased. So I think that I've got a kind of WhatsApp group chat with my best closest friends and not a day goes by when we don't all leave each other quite long voice notes about whatever we're doing to just offload. And even by the end of the leaving the WhatsApp voice notes, oh, but then you get to listen to their offloads as well. And I think probably every day, my real, even more than the trees, it's my WhatsApp friend voice notes to both let go of what's been troubling me and also to listen with empathy to what's been troubling them makes us feel that even though we don't all live in the same place, that we're always connected. And yeah, they're my, definitely my support system. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Roz. Thank you. That's a really lovely answer. And as you were talking about the tree, you've got a lovely picture of yourself in a tree on your website, but it also reminded me of one of our previous guests, Justin Wiggin. He uses technology to enable people to hear the communications of plants and trees. And I was thinking I must connect you to him because yes. I know you've chosen a tree for each month of your Acer programme. And I think there'd be a lot for you to be gained by having contact with Justin. So I will introduce you. Please, that sounds amazing. I would love that. But thank you so much for giving us so much time today. It's been lovely to to have this chat with you. Really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been I've really enjoyed it. Great to meet you, Ross. Yeah, lovely to meet you too. Thank you.